Yehuda Geber with uh, another Jewish History Soundbites uh, podcast. And a very interesting phenomenon of uh, pre-war Lithuanian yeshiva life was the, the uh, foreigners that came to learn and study in these yeshivas where the primary student body was Polish Jews, Lithuanian Jews. And here there was this interesting and growing minority in the pre-war era of non-Eastern European Jews from the United States, from Germany, from England, and other countries that came to study in these yeshivas, they came to learn in these yeshivas. So it's a very interesting uh, story. So we'll touch on it a little bit. Of course, it's a huge topic that could definitely be expanded upon. Um, it, the, the, the main and principal time that this exists is in the interwar period. In the pre-war era, there was a little bit of it. There was even in the real pre-war, in the 19th century, um, even in Valozhin, where um, it was a rare, kind of rare, someone just showed me recently, that in 1879 there was an American who learned in Valozhin from Chicago, um, which I had never known before. Um, but it was definitely quite rare um, to have in the pre-war era. There were some yeshivas that did. They had a few um, foreign students who came to learn in the great yeshivas of Lithuania in the, in the pre-World War I time. The, the, um, the reason that in the interwar period that started to change is for several reasons. Uh, one of them had to do with funding. Most of the funding before World War I for these yeshivas came within the Russian Empire. Now, Valozhin Yeshiva, the first, the mother of modern yeshivas in the, the new style of yeshivas, the ones that were, were um, that followed the Valozhin model, the funding came from all over. It wasn't specifically one community that funded the yeshiva, and therefore the funding came from all over. And most of the funding before the Russian Revolution during World War I came from within the Russian Empire. Not all of it. There was fundraising done in Western Europe as well, but most of it. And the funding is what brings the PR to the yeshiva. It is what makes it famous. In fact, the Chavetz Chaim, the great Chavetz Chaim, once said that he, he, um, he appreciates the fact that people have to go and fundraise to the most foreign, far-flung Jewish communities around the world to fundraise for the yeshiva, because then people will hear about what a yeshiva is. And perhaps if they hear about a yeshiva, they'll send their sons to a yeshiva. And he said the best advertising for a yeshiva and for the idea of a yeshiva is the fact that they have to fundraise for it. It was at a time when then there was a group of wealthy individuals who wanted to provide the full funding for the yeshiva, and the Chavetz Chaim refused it. And he said this was the reason he gave. He said the yeshiva belongs to the entire Jewish people, and not only does that, the entire Jewish people have the privilege of funding it, but also to hear about it. If someone comes, a, a fundraiser for the yeshiva, and sometimes it's a prestigious-looking rabbi, a Talmud Chacham, he comes into this little shtetl at the far reaches of the Russian Empire, and he gets up in shul on Shabbos, and he says, let me tell you about Valazhin Yeshiva, let me tell you about Radin, let me tell you about Mir, whatever Yeshiva he's funding for, fundraising for, and he can light up the eyes of the people in the audience, where there's this great place that they're learning Torah, that they're producing rabbis and rabbanim, and leaders of the Jewish people, 
This brings great covet, Hatayra the Chavetz Chaim said, and also prestige in the eyes of, of the people to the yeshiva. And maybe they'll send their kids to get a Jewish education in a yeshiva framework as well. So with the expanding of funding, uh, fundraising throughout Western Europe and eventually the United States in the interwar period, this brought more um, PR for the yeshivas. And that's definitely one reason people heard about the great yeshivas. Um, also, the early American yeshivas were getting off the ground at the time, and some of the best and brightest of the American yeshivas wanted to move on to go to the great yeshivas of Eastern Europe. There was nothing wrong with the yeshivas in America, but like any any educational institution, just this morning I guided a group in Yad Vashem, and obviously Lahavdil, but this group consisted of um, college students, non-Jews. It was a non-Jewish group, and and this group consisted of college students uh, from a certain university in the United States, whatever it is, and uh, some of them were from Venezuela, and some of them were from China. The rest were regular American, and and the, the, you know, I asked them why they're there, and they said, you know, they're they're exchange students. They're coming to upgrade to be in a prestigious university. And that's just a natural course of events that there's certain universities in America that are better than what either China or Venezuela has to offer. So although there were some very impressive yeshivas that were getting off the ground in the 1920s in America, but of course the great yeshivas of Eastern Europe, of Lithuania and Poland, were at a higher level, and the best and the brightest were, and the bravest also, were willing to go far away, cross the ocean, and there's bravery on their parents' part as well, obviously, to go study in the great citadels of Tyra in Eastern Europe. So some of them, you know, it's interesting which ones they went to. There were a few that went to Tells, not many. Ramat Gifter was a famous one who learned in Tells, and it's actually because his family, his father was an immigrant from Shadove. Shadove is a town in Lithuania right near Tells, where... Rabbi Yosef Leib Bloch, who was the Rashivan Tells, had a yeshiva in Shaduva before he became the Rashivan Tells. So there's definitely a connection right there. There was a few who learned in Kamenets, also not many. Slabatka a bit more. And interestingly enough, in the Slabatka branch in Hebron, there's quite a few Americans. Radin, there was a few. Some yeshivas didn't have any. It doesn't seem to be, have been popular in certain other yeshivas. Navardic didn't really have any Americans learning there or Grudna, or, or Slonim, uh, certain other yeshivas, to the best of my knowledge. Baranovich did not have too many foreigners learning in that yeshiva. But the one that had the bulk and the largest percentage of not only Americans, but of foreigners, of non-Eastern Europeans, was definitely the Mir Yeshiva. By the way, when we say foreigners, in the writings of the time, both by the Talmidim, the Bachram themselves, and by Rashi Yeshiva, and by anyone writing about the Fananim, the way these people are referred to as is B'nai Chutz Lo'aretz, which is a very interesting way of referring to them. Today we call someone who's not from Israel, from Eretz Yisrael, he's from Chutz Lo'aretz. He's outside of Eretz Yisrael, he's from Chutz Lo'aretz. And here you have some idea that anyone who's not from Eastern Europe is from Chutz Lo'aretz. And the idea is that Eastern Europe is the main center of Jewish life at the time. So anyone who's not in the center, not in the middle of things, not where main, mainstream religious life 
And it's not only religious life, it's political life, cultural life, numbers, demographics. That's where the Jewish people are, is in Eastern Europe. If you're not from there, then you're from Chutzlaretz. So you'll have a guy named Rabavram Farbstein, who later becomes famous as the Rosh Hashiva and Hebron Yeshiva. His son is the Rosh Hashiva there today. And he comes from Yerushalayim, where he grew up, and he comes to study at the Mir Yeshiva. Right? So he's from Eretz Yisrael. Why is he coming? He's leaving Eretz Yisrael to go study in the yeshiva. Today, people come from America to Eretz Yisrael. So the idea is that it's not really the idea of coming to Eretz Yisrael. It's coming to yeshivas that are at the next level, like we said about the American yeshivas then. And the center of yeshiva life, the center of religious life at that time was not in Eretz Yisrael. It was in Eastern Europe. So there weren't that great yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael yet. They had a few yeshivas, Eitzchayim, Chevron was getting off the ground. But Eastern Europe was the center. So he leaves Eretz Yisrael to come to study in the great yeshivas of Eastern Europe. He wasn't the only one, by the way. I'm just using him as an example. And theoretically, he's not ever referred to as that. But theoretically, in the context of the time, he's B'nai Chutz Laaretz. He's not from Eastern Europe. He's coming from Eretz Yisrael. And that's a, definitely an irony of the situation. But as we said, most are from other countries. There's all sorts of countries that are feeders into this into this phenomenon, there are people coming from England, they are coming from countries in Western Europe. There was a great yeshiva in Haida in Belgium. The Rosh Yeshiva of the Haida Yeshiva in Belgium was um, Rabbi Shraga Feivel Shapiro, who was a nephew of the Altar of Kelm. His brother was the father of the late Rabbi Shapiro, a famous one of the great Gedalim who uh, just passed away the last couple of years. So Rabbi Shraga Feivel Shapiro, he had a yeshiva, a Litvish-style yeshiva in Haida in Belgium, who was considered one of the greatest yeshivas in Western Europe. And he was a feeder into the Mir and other yeshivas in Eastern Europe. He would graduate his guys and send them to the yeshivas of Eastern Europe. And that was a large source of the foreigners, of the B'nai Chutzlars, that would come to learn in the Mir and other places. He, he unfortunately was killed by the Nazis and his yeshiva was destroyed. Um, there were many, many guys who came from Germany. Um, Reb Shimon Schwab famously came from Germany, learned in the Mir and other yeshivas. He used to have, and he this, uh, they threw him into a a uh, a a double identity for the rest of his life. Did he consider himself a product of the Litvish yeshivas with their ideals, or did he is he still a product of Frankfurt of the Tyrim Derecheres of Reb Shamshin or Fall Hirsch? And it was something that he wrote about and spoke about and struggled with and really enriched us all by sharing us the best of both worlds that he experienced and his exposure to the Chavetz Chaim, which he did when he visited uh, him um, several times while he was learning in Eastern Europe. Rabbi Shleimer Volbe, who came from Berlin, eventually came to learn in the Mir Yeshiva. Now what a lot of these German Bachram did, as well as the Americans who came, was that they would hire an elder Bachar to learn with them. And uh, this would be a source of Parnassa. Many of these Polish and Lithuanian Bachrim were poor, and they came from poorer homes. And very often, the the Westerners, the Americans, and the the um, German Bachrim had more substantial means, and they would hire tutors to learn with them, to study with them, to get them integrated into the yeshiva. And uh, that was one of the reasons that the Rosh Yeshiva liked it. It was a good source of income for the Yeshiva. For the Bachar with the Yeshiva is a way for the, them to be self-supporting. Now, at some point, 
at least for the German boys, it failed. The system failed. Why? Because once Hitler came to power and um, Jews in Germany started being removing from their positions, um, Jews, Jewish Jews were dismissed from jobs. Sometimes even their assets were seized outright, which is the anti-Jewish policy of Germany in the 1930s is definitely a topic for a future podcast. But these German boys were very often coming to the Mirishiv in the late 1930s as refugees, and very often as penniless refugees. And yet the Mirishiva does not stop taking them. They say, oh, we counted on you guys bringing in uh, money to the yeshiva. We're not taking you in. That's not what they did. They actually came in in greater numbers, and they became a financial liability for the yeshiva, and they accepted more and more of them. So it started off as a financial asset to the yeshiva, eventually becomes a financial liability, and not only, not only do they not decrease their acceptance, they actually increase their acceptance um, of more and more German Bachrim in the late 1930s joining the yeshiva. But definitely the most interesting part of the story is the Americans who come. The Americans come um, from a completely different culture. Many of them are descended from Eastern European Jews, and many of their parents are immigrants, definitely no Yiddish uh, from the home. It's the first and second immigrant generation. And we're obviously talking about the few American immigrant Jews who um, stayed religious. And not only did they stay religious, but beyond the regular public school education that they all got, they sent their sons to the American yeshivas. And now they're graduating and moving on from those yeshivas to be sent to, um, to the yeshivas of Eastern Europe, mainly to the Mir. The Mir had a very large American contingent, relatively. It was in the tens. There was quite a few of them. And Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, the Mashkiach of the Mir, saw this as a, a, um, a he, he saw this as a blessing for the yeshiva. And at the same time, he realized that these people come from such a vastly different culture and mentality that he needs to whip them into shape. And what he starts to do is he starts to give a daily chumashir. Very interesting. This chumashir, you were not allowed to attend if you were a Polish or Lithuanian bacher in the yeshiva. You were a Polish or a Litvish. You were not allowed to come. This was only for B'nai Chutzlaretz. And Rebuchim Levavitz wrote in a few places, the Mashgich Demir, that he felt that the true Yiras Shemayim we can draw out of basic reading of Chumash, Rashi, and the Pirish of the Ramban. Those three together, that's what teaches us Yiras Shemayim. That's what lifts us up. And he says, that's what teaches us Yiddishkeit. That brings us closer to Hashem. And these Chumashim, he said, we need to go with the basics. These were very, very different they're printed in six volumes in the Sefer Das Torah of Yerucham Levavitz, and the style is very different than his shmuzin, which he gave to the entire yeshiva, the Musar shmuzin, which are deeper, longer. This is a much more lighter style. He sometimes says stories, sometimes talks about his own personal life and his in his chinuch that he got in Kelm and in Slabatka. It's fascinating. He refers very often to current events. Fascinating study to see what type are the chumashiurim. And these chumashiurim really... Not only in their printed uh, in their printed edition do we gain from them and grow from them till today, but they really changed the world and opened up the world of Ruchnius, of Musr, of Yerushalayim and Yiddishkeit to these foreigners that Rabbi Rucham decided to deal with personally. And he said, they need special attention. We need to educate them in a special way. And he devoted his full energies to in that regard. You know, and I don't know if this instigated the event, but, uh, but definitely it happened at that same time period was that these Americans brought American customs with them to uh, the mirror. You know, they didn't leave it behind. They, in America, they played 
football in yeshiva, so in the mirror they came to play football also, and they actually played football once. They were caught playing football in the yard in front of the yeshiva, and that caused an uproar in town. And how could these yeshiva guys go ahead and play ball right in front of the yeshiva's um, property? And they were scolded and uh, and re-educated, and they were told not to do it in on yeshiva property, but that just goes to Shavu. Everyone was shocked. There's you know, a real culture clash there. They did not stop playing ball. Um, they continued to play, but it was only off the yeshiva grounds and mainly during the summer of vacation when they would go out to the, what was called the daches, to the forest nearby, and uh, they would organize, of course, in the summer. They would play baseball, and um, that's related by one of the most famous and important accounts of Americans studying in the mirror of Rucham Shane. Ruham Shane was the daughter of a great American uh, religious Orthodox hero, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman, and she wrote a book about her father, All for the Boss, definitely a must-read, and I'm sure most people have read it. It was a book that, uh, that I grew up with, and uh, many others did as well. And there's a chapter in the book that's not about her father at all. It's about her own experiences as a young married couple in the mirror. And it's absolutely a, an amazing window a testimony into what it was like for an American couple from American background and mentality to come and learn in the mirror, the sacrifice they had. They did not have indoor plumbing in mirror homes at the time. To go to an outhouse when you're used to growing up in New York City with bathrooms. The amount of electricity. She describes how her sister plugged in an iron to iron her husband's shirt and, and it blew the electricity of the whole town of the mirror because the wattage that she was using for her little iron was too much for the capacity of the entire electricity of the town. Um, so it was an amazing sacrifice that she had and other people had. And her father, Yaakov Yosef Herman, was actually the one who sent quite a few of these guys to Baruch Kaplan, or Shach Nezan, um, Yankel and Yossel Shroit, who Yossel Shroit was someone who I was privileged to know. Um, other people who went to the mirror, Chaim Avram Pincus came from, um, uh, the father of Rav Shimshin Pincus learned in the mirror at that time as well. Uh, Rabbi Victor Miller, who learned in Slabatka, was indirectly under the influence of Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman when he was studying at Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Yitzhak Al-Khanan. And um, these people came to the mirror and were encouraged to do so because Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Herman believed in it. Rucham Hashem actually describes how she was, her husband was, was a married man wearing a talis in the yeshiva, and he was much younger than, than the Litvish and Polish Shabacherim in the yeshiva who in those times only got married in their mid-30s, which is a story in itself why they did that. And he has, as a young guy in his 20s, as an American, has to hire one of these older guys to learn with him, and there is still a single bacher, and he's already married. And it's a culture clash, and it's a sacrifice on these Americans' parts, but they somehow do it, and they somehow persevere, and they come back enriched, and they enrich American Jewish Orthodox society. Many of them become educators, rabbis, build yeshivas of their own, and definitely those Americans who were able to do so um, were able to um, bring back a whole experience with them. One of them actually was a fascinating character, Theodore Lewis, who grew up in, the, in, in Dublin, in Ireland, and he came to learn in the mirror. He was a Talmud of Rabbi Rucham. He writes in his memoirs, also a fascinating account of his time in the yeshiva. He later becomes a rabbi in Dublin. Then he becomes a rabbi in the Turo Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, he never got married. When he retired, he moved to Barra Park and Davin in the Mir Minion, where my wife's grandfather knew him very well, was close friends. He died at the age of 95 not long ago. 
a fascinating character, and he shares his description of a boy from Ireland coming to uh, learn at the Mir Yeshiva at the time. So that's a little bit about foreigners, B'nai Chutz coming to learn both at the Mir and other yeshivas. We'll perhaps expand on this topic at a future opportunity. This is Yehuda Geber. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com, where we, as a group of Americans, can go to the Mir Yeshiva today, both in uh, both the old Mir Yeshiva in Belarus, and see these great places, or the Mir Yeshiva of today, where it is in Yerushalayim, and, um, and, um, or for questions, comments, sources, subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. If you enjoy, give a good rating, share it with your friends and family. You can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and we hope you enjoy.